My name's Derek. If we haven't met, I'm the campus pastor for RUF, and uh, it's my privilege to get to talk every week, right here, right now. Um, and if you're coming to RUF for the first time, or even for the, I don't know, Rachel, how many times? Probably 120th time. Uh, it's still really easy for you to possibly think, eh, I'm not an RUF kind of person. So each week I'm going to take a little opportunity to remind you who RUF is for. RUF is for all kinds of people. So on Sunday, whether you cried when the Steelers lost or you cried watching Downtown Abbey, RUF is for you. Even if you cried in both, because you could have done that. Uh, We're going skating tomorrow night. Whether you owned the skating rink in sixth grade, that was your place. Or you were the awkward kid that spent $10 in video games and just kept going back and getting mixed sodas and trying to avoid everyone at the skating rink. RUFs for you. And uh, we just finished Christmas, and some of you probably were forced to do some Christmas pictures still. Whether uh, you were part of the family that had awesome family Christmas pictures... Or awkward family Christmas pictures. <laughs> yeah. Whether awesome or awkward, RUFs for you. Uh, I really want you to take this to heart. Uh, we in RUF, I in RUF especially, take the Bible seriously. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to take ourselves seriously. And I want you to know that wherever you may be in regards to Christianity, we're glad you're here and we think you can benefit from this time. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, cynical about Christianity, burned out, on fire, I, I do care what you think. But what I want you to know is we're glad you're here. We think you can benefit from being here. RUF for you. And this semester, we're studying relationships. And over the first two weeks, just broadly speaking, we talked about uh, God's design for relationships, why we have a desire for them, why they mean so much to us. And then last week, why they're often so disappointing, why we're so often frustrated by them. And uh, this week, we're sort of going to go, well, back to the beginning again and, and talk about family. I was getting ready to say, like, you know, the hefts were here, and that was pretty heavy. So we'll do something light tonight, like family. Um, There there aren't going to be many light things, frankly, when we talk about relationships. Uh, A really interesting thing, uh, whether you start in the New Testament or start in the Old Testament, they both start with family. And I'm actually going to read a little bit from both tonight. So uh, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 20, I'll read one verse, and then some from 4, and then I'll skip over to Matthew. Feel free to follow along up there. So, in chapter 3, the man calls his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Skipping down to chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? 
you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And he knew his wife, and she conceived, and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methuselah, 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 I didn't practice this, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, you may think you've had enough genealogy, but it's not true. I'm going to switch over to Matthew chapter 1 for just a second. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. We're going to skip over to uh, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation um, to Babylon were 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. And the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Okay, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Father, we thank you for this rather long reading of the text. And we pray, Lord, that you be gracious to show us great things in your word tonight. We pray especially, Lord, that you would show us, Lord Jesus, your goodness and your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, I've been around long enough to probably have lived through, I'm going to guess, a couple hundred different family sitcoms, some of which are good, some of which are bad. But increasingly over 40 years, which I think are 
really, this is a good development, increasingly more realistic about the way life really is. Uh, unfortunately, now I'm too busy to watch them. But occasionally something will come across that really interests me and I'll track it. So uh, I occasionally watched How I Met Your Mother. And a really interesting episode, if you've ever followed the show, if you haven't, you may identify with this one a bit. So in season four, episode of uh, episode seven of How I Met Your Mother, Barney, Barney is the, uh, there's five friends, Barney is the, the womanizer of the group. Before the show's over, he sleeps with 200 different people. Um, he receives a call from some one night stand informing him that he's the father of a child. And he hangs up in a panic and says, no one in their right mind would have a kid. Well, coincidentally, at the same time, his good friends Marshall and Lily, who are married, are discussing starting a family. And it's, it's not a passive discussion. They're, they're really invested. He really wants a family. Uh, she's not ready. They pull in their friends, um, Ted and uh, Robin, as well, to consult. Ted's all for it. Robin's against it. Ted accuses Robin of being scared of children. Robin accuses Ted of being an old dad anyway, because all he does is lecture people and tell bad dad jokes. Um, so while this is all going on, um, Barney actually gets a call and finds out that he's not the father after all. She's not pregnant. And he's so ecstatic in his relief that he actually dances out of the building, dances down the street, dances into the building where Marshall works and announces and shares, I'm not a father, and decides people like me should have a holiday, not a Father's Day. So he starts a movement to have a not a Father's Day holiday. Uh, he goes out and recruits people. He has not a Father's Day merchandise, not a Father's Day shirt, not a great dad mug, you know, that you could buy. Um, and he's so excited about it. Meanwhile, everybody else is still arguing about whether or not they should have a kid. Uh, whether Marshall and uh, Lily should start their family. And uh, Ted discovers in Robin's purse a little baby sock, like a little infant sock. She's afraid of children, doesn't want them at all. And he confronts her about it, and she denies it, and then eventually admits, like, I'm just confused. I don't know what I want. Um, and they run into Ted at the bar. He's got all his friends with them from this Not a Father's Day club and he's so proud of himself of his success of the success of this club and uh you know isn't this great and, and ted turns to him and says hey barney look around everyone here's a loser like all these guys that are here they're not fatherless by choice like look at them and he turns around and looks and agrees <laughs> like this is a room full of losers and uh if they could, they probably would have kids, but they can't because no one wants them. And uh, everyone leaves, and Barney's left there with this revelation and a baby sock. And then this scene happens. We're going to try and play a clip for you. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it's really interesting. This is at the very end of the movie, or TV show, rather. sound well <laughs> well you keep watching I'll tell you what he's saying and I can sing the song he's singing cats in the cradle 
if you haven't heard it, he's singing Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and the Man in the Moon. Uh, when you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. We'll be together then, Dad. We'll have a good time then. If you've ever listened to this song, it's a story of paternal heartbreak. Uh, as a, a father's too busy for his kid, the kid grows up and now he's too busy for his father. And, and Barney's at a karaoke bar with his baby sock. You see it? The baby sock in his hand, singing in the cats in the cradle. See, for Barney, the, uh, the reality is he can't think about having a family. He can't think about a son without it being deeply painful because he's never known a father. As soon as he starts thinking about having a kid and being a father, he immediately thinks about the father he had. And he didn't have one. His dad was absent. He hadn't known his father for years. He doesn't even know who his father is until much later in the show. And I appreciated that about the show. It's realistic. The reality is our family experiences, for good or bad, shape us in profound ways. And frankly, often we come to college, and for some of you, it's the very first time you've ever been separated from your family. And for some of you, that's a cause of grief. And for some of you, that's a cause of great joy. Um, but the short of it is, at some point, we have to really figure out how our family shaped us and how we should think about our family and what we should do about it. And what I want us to do tonight is sort of dive into the topic of family, all the awkward, all the awesome, all the good, all the bad, maybe not all of it, we'd be here forever, uh, the sin and the shame, and, uh, and maybe for some of you, open up some wounds that you wish no one knew about. Um, but at the end of it all, I, I want us to see something I think is really clear in the Bible. Simple point. God does not give up on family. He doesn't give up on family. And uh, we're going to look first at how we're shaped by family, but then how God is working to save us into his family. Okay? So first, how we're shaped by family. Um, We started in chapter 3 and 4, and if you were here last week, you might remember that this first couple, the first husband and wife, the first family, really, really messed things up. And... uh, God basically told them, if you don't listen and obey me, you're going to die. But instead, he provides a sacrifice, a covering. They're allowed to live. They have to leave the garden and start life over. But we read in 3.20 already that there's a promise of life, that they're, they're going to have a kid. God has made a promise that he's going to give an offspring that will be a blessing to the world. And uh, we see them start that process. And so we have three times in chapter 4... A couple hooking up. You may not have noticed this. But in four one, Adam knew Eve and they conceived. And then in verse 17, something like that, in verse 25 too. So, you know, there's a lot of sex in the Bible. You just may not know it. Um, so, you know, we, we have families doing family things here. And it's pretty amazing because given what happened in chapter 3, there's really no reason to think anything good might happen. But there's family here. And frankly... Family is central to the Bible, and it's central to us, too, in very special ways. We just don't know it. It's one of those deals where it's so common, you don't realize how special it is. But it's one thing that unites us all. We are all products of family. Like, you didn't spontaneously arrive. Your story is the same. Somebody knew somebody, and there was conception. Um, so that's, that's a pretty simple point, but really, we're all here because of family. Um, That being said, that's what we have in common, there's differences. And you see differences here. In chapter 4, this is all one big family tree, but very different stories. The first couple, Adam and Eve, have a family, and terrible things happen. 
fratricide happens. And then there's a second family, Cain's family, and in some ways it's even worse. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But then there's a third family, for sort of the first family again, but there's another son, Seth, and good things happen. And it's common to our experience as well, that we all have family in common, but we have very different stories and very different experiences of family. It's really easy for us to think, especially when we're in college, because you're fed this narrative often and you believe it, I can pretty much be who and what I want to be. And maybe you're learning as you bump up against some reality and diff EQ or uh, something else. Maybe I can't be whatever I want to be, but maybe I can still be who I want to be. And um, I hate to tell you, you, it's just not quite true. Um, So much of who you are is determined by family. It really is. There was a study begun in 1921 with 292 infants, and they were tracked over 70 years. Uh, This is called the Lothian Birth Cohort. And uh, after 70 years, scientists discovered that the human face contains subtle but real clues to a family's socioeconomic background. In other words, scientists could look at a 70-year-old's face and not just say, oh, you were so-and-so's kids, I can see it genetically. No, they could look at your face and know how your parents treated you, how you were fed, whether your parents smoked or drank. All these things, nutrition, illness, smoking, drinking, all the things that would affect your health, they show up in your face when you're 70. Uh, one writer of this, of this journal article in Economic and Human Biology simply wrote, your childhood is written all over your face. You may be forced to admit that you're the genetic product, that your family's genetics have shaped you, but what they're saying is, the nurture shaped you. The way you were raised shaped you for good or bad. Uh, and it's just true for all of us. Now, even in the worst, there's good. If you look at Cain's family, it's pretty bad. Bad things happen, but there's still good there. And you've heard this story before. In Cain's family, uh, there's murder and they're, they're proud of it, but there's art, there's hard work, there's civilization. And you've heard this, maybe you say this yourself, you've heard it from your friends. Yeah, my dad was distant often, but... You know, he tried. He worked hard. Yeah, my mom. There's always a but, right? No one's purely bad. There's always some good. Um, But we don't have time to talk about the good. I want to focus on the bad. Uh, We're shaped by family, by the story, by their influence, but also by sin. And uh, we're in chapter 4. The couple has been kicked out of the garden, and we see that sin is a present reality. Right from the beginning, they have a kid, and we don't get much of a background. We don't get to see little Cain and Abel playing in the playpen, running around the field, riding the pony or whatever. Uh, It's pretty straight to fratricide, like one kills the other. But there's an explanation there. And the explanation in verse 7 is sin. God actually is involved in their lives and comes and tells Cain, sin's crouching at your door. Well, how'd it get there? Well, it's it's part of who we are as humans. Adam and Eve took it with them out of the garden, and every human family has to deal with sin. Every one of you growing up had to deal with sin. Your parents' sin and your own sin. And as a result of sin, there's murder in the first family. There's lack of care and compassion. God comes to Cain, where's your brother? Um, Why do you care? Am Am I his keeper? 
Yes, you are, actually. You're responsible to love and care for your siblings. Uh, You are. Uh, And so sin leads us to harm one another. Sin leads us not to care for our family. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of... Anytime a parent loses a, a child, it's a terrible, horrible thing. But to lose two brothers in this way, this is the first family, guys. The first family. And this is the way the story goes. The older brother kills the younger. I mean, you may think you have a dysfunctional family, but this is the first family, right? If, you th- if you're ashamed of your family because of things, you'd like the Bible should actually comfort you. Because every family is dysfunctional. Adam and Eve weren't for about five minutes and they messed it up. Um, so, you know, here you have a place that the family is supposed to be a place of love and comfort and growth. And instead it's a place of hurt, a place of harm. Um, but it's also be a, it's supposed to be a place where you struggle. And I'm going to use this word struggle carefully. I want you to, to hang with me. Family is supposed to be a place where you learn to struggle well against a couple things. I want to encourage you that you were supposed to struggle against your sin. You inherited it from your family. You were born with it. We talked about this last week. You were born with this innate selfishness and self-centeredness. And uh, we see this on display in Cain. Um, He just naturally thinks he's right and he's jealous. And he believes he deserves to do what he wants, even if it costs someone their life. And God comes to him and tells him, "You you have the responsibility to resist to repent. And for every one of us, if we grow up in family, family is your first God-given opportunity to learn that you're not the center of the universe. It's your first God-given opportunity to confront your own selfishness and sin and to learn how to listen and even obey like a good loving authority, if you have a good loving authority. And to learn how to care for and be compassionate toward others, like your siblings. That you're not the center of the universe. Those are really important life lessons. That there's authority out there that's good for me. And that there are others I should care for. Who are, in some ways, as important or me or more than important than me. And I should care for them. And uh, that my selfish inclinations are bad. Bad for others, bad for me, destructive. You're supposed to learn that in family. And if you didn't, there's a really good chance that you're a terrible roommate. I mean, I think it's just true. If you didn't learn that growing up, there's a good chance that you often think you're right, or you always think you're right, and you should never have to apologize. Unchecked, unchecked, this natural inclination, this selfishness, ends up in verse 23 and 24 with someone like Lemech. Someone hurt me, so I killed them. He deserved it. Like, like this kind of brash self-centeredness, um, narcissistic self-centeredness. I, I put it this way last week, this deep-rooted belief that I can do whatever I want and I should never have to apologize for it. And if you didn't learn growing up that you're not the center of the universe, that other people are more important than you, and you should, you're responsible for caring for them, and that you're wrong sometimes and you have to apologize, then... Uh, I'd say two things. One, I really am sorry. It's partly your responsibility, but partly your family's. But two, the other thing, more encouragingly, you're in a great place right now to learn. You really are. Um, The people around you, your roommates, they're your second opportunity. And frankly, I'll say this, maybe your last opportunity in close community to learn what it means to care for others. 
and that you're not the center of the world. So that's one struggle. You have to learn how to struggle against your sin. The second one uh, is a little different. Uh, I'm going to encourage some of you to struggle against your shame. And uh, I don't mean the embarrassment of your family. Like when you're 13, everything you do, your, fa- your family does, they embarrass you. You know, my dad wears funny clothes. My mom talks to everyone, and I'm mortified. No, I don't care about that. I really don't. Get over yourself. Um, you're not that important. Um, no, I'm talking about the deep-rooted shame of wounds that you may have that you actually don't talk about because of your family's lack of care for you. Some of you may have been hurt by your family or neglected. And I'm talking about that shame that you have to struggle against. I didn't play this clip um, for lots of reasons. And I'm almost afraid to share the story because it's pretty moving. But uh, before Will Smith was in every movie, he was on TV. And uh, he was in this sitcom in the 90s called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will basically um, comes to live with his Uncle Phil because he doesn't know his father. But in one episode called Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse, um, his dad, Lou, shows up. And uh, Will, who has this swagger and self-protectiveness, actually completely gives himself over to his father and uh, trusts him. And Uncle Phil sees this from a mile away and is very wary of it all. And at the end of the episode, uh, Lou is trying to sneak out. Again, and leave. He's made promises to Will they're going to go on this long trip together. And he's actually going to bug out and leave and not tell Will. Phil confronts him. And uh, as Lou's leaving, Will walks in. And uh, Lou gives this little quickly rehearsed speech about having a business trip. And I'll call you in a few weeks. You understand, don't you? And Will composes himself. He knows what's happening. And says, yeah, Dad, yeah. He actually doesn't call him Dad. He calls him Lou. His dad leaves and walks out. What happens next is really powerful. You should go look it up. Um, Uncle Phil, his sort of adopted father, apologizes. And Will's trying to compose himself and act like he's not angry. And the more Phil apologizes, the angrier Will gets. And he, he says this, It's okay, it's not like I'm five years old sitting around waiting for him to come home. You know, I learned how to drive by myself. I learned how to shave by myself. I learned how to fight by myself. I learned how to shoot baskets by myself. I didn't need him then. I don't need him now. It's almost like he's making a resolution. He gets really angry. You know, I'm going to go to college and get a great job. I'm going to get a great wife, have a bunch of kids. And uh, he's really angry and resolute. And he says, and I'm going to be... I'm going to be a better father than he ever was because there's nothing, nothing he can teach me about how to love my kids. It's pretty good. I see you. Um, in, in the midst of his anger, after he says all this, he breaks down and asks one question. How come he doesn't want me? He asks it very painfully, raw, after this really emotional outburst. How come he doesn't want me? Um, and if you go back and listen and read some clips, this was taped before a live studio audience. Supposedly, you can hear like the studio audience weeping. Everyone's crying. <laughs> it, it was, it's a pretty powerful scene. Um, if this is your something of this is your story, that your parents didn't love you well, uh, that they were distant and absent, that question right there, how come he didn't want me? That kind of painful insecurity, that wound that you carry around in you, you need to know 
that one is sort of justified to ask that. It's okay. But two, that thing has huge ramifications today and for the rest of your life. You cannot act like it doesn't exist. You cannot. That kind of insecurity will ruin your relationships today and in the future unless you're open about it and get some healing in it. Um, So if that's your story, you've known abuse, you've known abandonment, you've been manipulated, you've been hurt by family. Look, that's the place. Family is the place where you are supposed to learn that I can be me and be loved. I can be me and be loved. And if you grow up feeling like a failure because you're not loved, you're going to carry that insecurity throughout life in ways that are very unhelpful, very unhealthy. And so that's your story. I'd ask you to do a couple things. One, uh, feel free to be angry and grieve. Don't act like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's it's a big deal. Uh, Admit that it matters. Admit to yourself that it matters. Um, Share. Don't share with everyone. That's called complaining. Now, share in ways that are deep but meaningful with select people that you can trust. In ways that will help. With people that you think will help. Uh, own up to your responsibility in not the wrong way. Uh, it might be easy to ask the question, how come he doesn't love me or want me? Asking what's wrong with me. That's not what I'm talking about. No, own up to the way you've responded. Perhaps because... Your parents don't love you or haven't. You go looking for love in all kinds of other terrible places. Own up that you haven't responded well. And think about that. Admit that. And then uh, go looking for health and healing. Go talk to some people that know what they're talking about. Pastors, counselors, staff members, people that care for you and that can help you. That's not your story. Be grateful. Go home and thank your parents. Seriously, go home and call your mom and dad. And tell them that you love them and say, you know, to yourself, I know you weren't perfect, but thank you for loving me. And uh, try to care for your little brothers and sisters that drive you crazy. And uh, be sensitive to those around you who don't have your story. It's really easy for us to think our experience was normal and to wonder, like, what's wrong with you? Well, if you had their story and their background, maybe you would understand more. So uh, that's how we're shaped by our family. I could say more, but I've already talked for a long time. I want to share real quick how God saves us into his family. Let's take about five or six minutes. Really interesting here that God doesn't give up on family, okay? The first couple commit tr- cosmic treason. Remember, they, like, they're in the garden with God for like a while, and then they basically quit God and um, turn their back on him. And then there's the first two sons and one kills the other. It's a really bad start to the whole idea of family. Don't you think? <laughs> and God doesn't give up on family. Uh, there's another child. And, uh, and God keeps going with the, the whole human endeavor. Not only does he not give up on this particular family, Jesus is born into this family. Like This is actually Jesus' family. This son, 425, that's born, Seth, he's the, eventually the father of Abraham. Who's the father of David? Who's the father of Jesus? Through all these descendants. In some ways, in Matthew 1, if you read through that genealogy really cool, really closely, excuse me, you'd have all the important people that you would need. Like all the great people, like Abraham and David. What you also have, though, is a family lineage to be deeply ashamed of. When I was an undergrad, I had to do a, a, a genogram, which is a genealogy 
where you actually like poke around in all the issues as well. And I didn't really want to poke around in my family because I grew up rural Virginia and I knew I'd find some ugly things. Like that I had two first cousins get married. Like not that way, but like up the tree from me. No, down the tree. Whichever way. They're responsible for my DNA in some ways I'm not comfortable with. Um, that I had a great uncle in some part of my family that once passed out drunk in a field and died from Lyme disease because he slept for like three, three days in this tick-infested field. That's the kind of stock I come from. And, um, you know, I'm not so excited about that. I have reason to be sort of ashamed of my family. You look through Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, there's all kinds of reasons for Jesus to be ashamed of his family. There's a dude there that ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Didn't know it because he thought she was a prostitute. Somewhere else, there's actually a prostitute. <laughs> like, there's some crazy stuff in this genealogy. Jesus knows all about it, and he owns the family. If Jesus is embarrassed by his family, he never shows it. Instead, he comes in and owns the family of mankind in order that he might bring us into his family. He shares family with us to bring us into his family. Sin's a part of our family existence, a part of our reality from childhood on through. We have to learn how to struggle against it. Jesus comes actually into the family to struggle against sin. Matthew one twenty one. why did he do all this? He came to save his people from their sins. That required a few things of him. That Jesus was born into our family, but not quite like everyone else. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that means he actually had the ability not to sin. It wasn't easy for him. He had to resist sin. God comes to the first older brother, Cain, and says, Sin is crushing at your door. You have to resist. And he gave in. And that's our history. We know sin's crushing at our door, asking us to do things. And we say, nah, nah, yes, I like that. I'll do that. And Jesus said no all the time his whole life long. He resisted to the very end. He lived a perfect life for us. And then he died a sacrificial death for us. The first older brother, Cain, shed his brother's blood, and the blood cried out for vengeance, for justice. Jesus had his own blood shed for us. He went to the cross to die for his people, and his blood cries out for mercy. Uh, we have a completely different kind of older brother in Jesus, one who struggles against sin, to conquer sin for us, to make us part of the family. And in fact, when you read the whole Bible, the Bible is the story of God's struggle. Not... You may think the Bible is like the story of your struggle. Like, I had to listen to all this and do all this or God won't love me. Completely not what the Bible is about. The Bible is the story of God's struggle to bring his family back. To bring his people back to him. And how he loved his people so much that Jesus willingly came and was born into the story, born into the family, gave his life to bring people back to himself. And uh, you, you, some wonderful stuff. You, you have a father here who adopts you into the family and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never leave you or forsake you. Even your best guys, your daddies who love you, that are great daddies, they're going to leave you. They're going to die. I know what that's like. It's not forsaking, but they'll leave you. Uh, God the Father promises never to leave you or forsake you. You have a son here in Jesus, an older brother. Maybe you had an older brother who's embarrassed by you. The Bible says Jesus is your older brother who's not embarrassed to call you his brother. And you're adopted into this family of 
brothers and sisters called the church. Um, I'll share this story, then I'm done. Uh, this is a story passed on by a woman named Ruth Graham and then a pastor named Joe Novenson. I hope it's true, but I can't actually verify the veracity of this story. So uh, a couple years ago in the Middle East, there were two men who were arguing. The argument got so violent that one, they actually began to exchange blows and one accidentally killed the other. And uh, the, uh, the guy guilty of uh, involuntary homicide uh, immediately fled the area and sought refuge at a nearby uh, tribal chief's village and tent. Sought asylum there and the chief provided it and promised him protection. Uh, a couple of days, maybe a week or two later, a delegation came and uh, seeking this young man's life and uh, demanding justice. And uh, the chief, confronting this delegation, just simply told them, this man's under my care, I promise to protect him. And uh, they said, but you don't understand, the man they killed was your son. It was your son. First, the chief had heard of it. The, the guy who committed the murder had outrun the news. The chief, of course, was struck by the news. It took a long time to think about it. Everyone sat there on pins and needles, uh, wondering what he would say or do. And finally he spoke, and what he said was, then, then this man will be my son. This man right here, will now be my son. That's hard for you to imagine, right? That is the story of what God the Father and Jesus the Son have done for us. That Jesus sent, the Father sent His Son to die for us, that, that we might be brought into the family as sons and daughters. And I, I, I want to just encourage you that no matter what your family background is, good or bad, God does not give up on family. There is hope for your family. There is hope for you. And you have at your disposal, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, this new family that God has put together. He's your father. Jesus is your brother. You have one another. A place in which you can heal. A place in which you can hope. A place in which you can grow in the security that you are loved. And from that, you can go out to your family, no matter how hard it is, and forgive. Seek reconciliation. Try to love them anew. You can have hope for your family past, for your, for your family in the future, that you're not doomed to repeat all the failures of your family. All right, I'm going to pray.